0: Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, a piece by piece, episode by episode exploration of the winners of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, with hosts Andrew Grenade and David Thurmeyer.
1: Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, Episode Forty-Eight, where we're traveling back to 1990 and the 44th winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, Mel Powell for "Duplicates," a concerto for two pianos and
0: orchestra. So, Dave, Mel Powell, what you know? Well, this is very funny. It's proof that my my memory isn't completely gone. I knew the name was familiar, so I dug back into my uh, archives from graduate school, oh. and when I was a master student at the Eastman School of Music, I found, taking uh, atonal theory with Robert Morris, I, t- I have homework two pitch class sets in Etude by Mel Powell. Wow. And I'm holding Look it here. Look at that. I can see the pitch class sets. Yes, there they are. There's the piece. That's some serious analysis. Serious analysis. I got a lot of comments on my nice. uh, Mel Powell. So etude. what's your grade there? My grade is an okay. Because <laughs> that's all he <laughs> gave. We're okays or minuses. So I, I passed. You got an okay. I got an okay. Uh, did I Do I remember anything else about Mel Powell from that? No. And... Uh, Had forgotten about him since about whenever this was, 1998, I think I'd forgotten about Mel Powell. So pretty much nothing ever since that homework assignment. Yeah, it's kind of yellowed there. It is a little. (laughs) (laughs) That's an old piece of paper there. We're old, so (laughs) yeah, just (laughs) kind of, I'm going to preserve this, uh, put it under a frame. But uh, yeah, so that was it. So how about you? Uh, Not very much, but what I did find out,
1: I have to share here at the top of the episode is that Mal, Mel Powell becomes the second Pulitzer Prize winner buried within like an hour, hour and a half of where we are in Kansas City. It's really? So but Virgil for, Thompson yeah. buried in Slater, Missouri, which we talked about that I had been out to his grave. Right. I've not been to Mel Powell's grave, but he is not even an hour away from here
0: in Jamesport, Missouri. The Amish community of yeah. Jamesport. How, how did that happen? Because he's a New Yorker and That's a That's where California. his wife was from. Oh, okay. So they're both buried there. Well, I think we have a hearing the Pulitzer's field trip. I think we do too.
1: <laughs> Once it's not you know snowy and icy, we yeah. can drive out and give some flowers to good old Mel Powell in Jamesport, Missouri.
0: Exactly. Wow, interesting local connection. There you go.
1: Hmm. <laughs> well, maybe we should tell the story.
0: Telling the story. Well, I, we were just talking before the podcast. I think this is, uh, he's, Mel Powell is certainly one of the most fascinating people we've ever I think he may at. be the
1: most fascinating winner, just in terms of the background and, and who he interacted with and where he was in his life. He may be the most fascinating. I mean, maybe since like Aaron Copeland in
0: terms yeah. of the connections that he had. Yeah, definitely. And so you have a trivia question here. I do. And so we'll ask our listeners, who was the first jazz musician to win the Pulitzer Prize for music? Hint: It wasn't Wynton Marsalis or Duke Ellington who or we we've talked discussed. About. It yeah. was Mel Powell. Wait a minute! All right, duplicates isn't a
1: jazz piece. I know. We have yeah. this kind of three lives of Mel Powell, and the first is like you said, New York, and he is a jazz pianist. So the story goes that uh, born Melvin Epstein in New York City. In 1923. 1923. Started playing piano in 1927. He's four years old. Was going to be a concert pianist until his brother takes him to see the great jazz pianist, Teddy Wilson. And he's like, that's what I want to do. (laughs) And so by 14, uh, he's got a job at Knicks, which is a Greenwich Village nightclub. He is out there, 14 years old, improvising with kind of the best of the best. I mean, really a, a piano prodigy.
0: And it's of that, uh, you can hear lots of recordings when he gets a little bit older with some, he played with some very famous people we'll talk about, Uh, but it's it's that stride piano. It's that really fast kind of, yeah very swinging it's very much that kind of 1920s jelly roll
1: morton yeah that's the kind of style and
0: it's it's pretty impressive it is and he was also a composer and arranger which uh, he became much more in the spotlight playing with a couple of famous people including one benny goodman when he was 18 yeah (laughs)
1: that's right before that is when he changed his name so when you're with benny goodman Professionally, after that, he's known as Mel Powell. Mm -hmm. But yeah, can you imagine being 18 and playing with Benny Goodman? I know. And arranging for Earl Hines? Yeah. That's the life he was living. It's absolutely, absolutely amazing. So I thought we should listen to, of course, a little bit of Mel Powell because it's just so good. Yeah. Um, So this is actually him playing with... Benny Goodman, that's a piece he wrote for them called The Earl, has no drums, so he's the percussion section along with a bass, Um, but you'll get to hear a little bit of him trading licks with Benny Goodman and then a bit of his piano playing. playing with the beat and yeah. changing it all up and and he's hanging in there with everyone
0: it's oh, amazing yeah. really doing, amazing doing very well and so after that point he went uh it was in world war ii of course and played in the glenn miller army air force band yeah
1: 43 so, to 45 so yeah that was his enlistment job he didn't go fight he played the piano yeah Which with, you can see why exactly to recording.
0: yeah yeah with glenn miller uh but then right after the war uh, studied composition with Ernst Talk former winner mm-hmm. from 1946 to 48 and then took a real a real, a real turn. turn going to Yale uh, and studying with Paul Hindemith, getting his bachelor of music degree. Because, of course, he has no academic Well, he was 18 when he was playing with Benny Goodman. So yeah. he starts from the beginning in, in Harmony One <laughs> at, <laughs> well, at Yale. One might say he got his doctorate on the bandstand uh, before <laughs> And then that. his bachelor's, and at <laughs> Yale. bachelor's at Yale. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. And it's fascinating that this is now the second Mel Powell. Because yeah. studying with Paul Hindemith, he becomes a neoclassic
0: composer. And before, uh, also while doing the research for this, I listened to one of his pieces uh, that he wrote when he was studying with Hindemith. Uh, it was called Recitative and Toccata Percossa for harpsichord. And it was played by the great harpsichordist Ralph Kirkpatrick sure. and in 1961 or so. So, it, yeah, neoclassic, not at all like the piece we're getting to. So he went through, as everyone does, their neoclassic phase. And then what happens? Well, in the 50s, uh, he becomes fascinated with Schoenberg and this is kind of where he stays the rest of his career, is
1: kind of a post-serial Schoenbergian atonalist. So he's never fully serial. Um, he uses retrogrades and inversions and all the kind of tricks that a serial composer would, but he's really just interested in kind of a um, an atonal wash of sound. And he does this through the 1970s, and then he has a crisis, and for about 10 years he doesn't compose. And during this time, we get to the next part of his <laughs> life where he's... Invited to be the founding dean of Cal Arts, yeah. So he had taken over from Hindemith at Yale and was teaching at Yale, and then gets called out and goes to Cal Arts and becomes, through the 1970s, the dean of Cal Arts, and then continues
0: teaching there, basically up until his death in 1998. Yeah, he even became the provost, and right. at, and then uh, decided he would had enough of being a provost and wanted to go back to doing music and. Yeah, and then retired, and that was that. So it became a West Coast fixture, uh, even though, it, well, I mean, we'll talk about the piece itself, but it, mm-hmm. it may have a lot of echoes or shadows of the East Coast with the serial work, right. but but definitely based on the West, and we'll, we'll hear some something about his reaction to winning, because that... Of where he was. Yeah, where he was plays into that. But the one thing we didn't mention is that part of the reason for all these
1: shifts is that he had muscular dystrophy. and So uh, when he went to study composition, it was because it had affected his legs and he couldn't tour around like he had for at that point, almost 20 years. Um, And then when we get to something like duplicates, he originally was going to perform it. It was beginning to affect his hands at that point. So we can see that a lot of these shifts that happened in his life were also because of uh, personal health issues.
0: So, yeah, almost several careers in music several administrator, years. jazz, gigging, pianist, arranger, composer, serial composer, you neoclassic know, composer, academic. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah. It's a fascinating, fascinating life. Yeah. Well, maybe we should see if duplicates is as fascinating as we go behind the notes. Behind the notes.
1: All right. First, we have to talk about where this comes from. And you actually have the score, which is enormous. enormous. <laughs> it's like two or three feet tall. It's an enormous, <laughs> enormous score. And partially that's because of all the percussion. Yeah. Uh, but right at the beginning, it tells you the providence of this, that it was commissioned by Betty Freeman. And we've talked about Betty Freeman a couple of times. She is just the most important com- uh, patron Especially in California, especially on the west coast of avant-garde music so I've come across Betty Freeman because she was a huge supporter in the 70s of uh, Harry Parch yep um, she was a huge supporter of Steve Reich in his early years and here she is continuing that tradition supporting Mel Powell by commissioning a piece that was going to be performed by the Los Angeles
0: Philharmonic and there were a few issues uh, because it was originally going to be played or slash conducted by the famous conductor and famous former conductor of the L.A. Phil, Andre Previn, Uh, but didn't work out. He resigned and ended up not playing it. But a couple of new music pianists, Robert Taub and Alan Feinberg, took it up and did play the piece together. So uh, it's in three movements and long. There's a funny quote in the, I think in the liner notes uh, Mm -hmm. where he, Powell talks about how oh I was uh, this was just going to be my nine-minute usual <laughs> right. piece, but it ended up <laughs> being 32 minutes long. So it's divided up into three movements. Uh, the first one is called Anta. The second is three interludes, which have uh, Madrigal, Immobile, and Mobile, and then the Anta variations for part three. Mm-hmm. So basically,
1: you have two big movements. And then one, the three interludes, is actually a fairly short movement. Uh, the three interludes are madrigal, immobile, and mobile. Mm-hmm. And you can hear where those things change because the, the, the textures, the instrumentation change in those sections.
0: But each one is like maybe two minutes long. I mean, yeah. it's a
1: very, very short little interlude before you get back to basically variations.
0: Yes, and as Andrew mentioned, the, there's an enormous amount of percussion. So there's uh, three players, but I mean, how many... Oh, over twenty, over 20 per- different instruments that yeah. those three players are, are managing. So I'm curious when you're when you were listening to it, how you think because a, a, a two piano concerto it's a, called a concerto, but I think there's a lot of moments where the pianos sort of are subsumed by the orchestra and it's it doesn't necessarily feel like a concerto at times it's yeah it was interesting to me that you
1: get this especially at the start of it i'm gonna play the start here in just a moment you get these kind of piano gestures and then it's almost as if you get the orchestra taking those up and, and carrying them on and the piano is still there you can hear it kind of bubbling away in the background but the piano is completely taken over so it's not so much like they're they're concerting against each other they're not fighting against each other and it's not like the you're really listening just to the piano. There's all of this uh, extra, extra music in the orchestra that really is kind of the focus of what you're listening to. So let's just listen to the beginning. I think you can hear it really clearly right there at the very beginning.
0: Benny Goodman, haven't we? Quite a ways. So I have to read this quote. Around this time
1: when he was working on this piece, um, Donna Perlmutter in the LA Times wrote a profile of Mel Powell, and this is what she said about the music, and it's so absolutely perfect now that you've heard a little bit of it. Uh, She said that his music is austere, non-populist music, where one can discern no common theme, no steady beat, no compelling cadence, a private art. Ooh... So that's pretty evocative of yeah. what, what's happening. That it's it's very much like you're getting a peek into Mel Powell's head. He's not uh, like inviting you in. He's just saying this is who it is. There's not a sense of him reaching out to the audience. No.
0: Uh, in like say Stephen Alpert in the River Run that we heard uh, a couple of episodes ago. No, definitely not. And part of it is also the musical language that's involved here. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned his his serial background. I don't I don't know the. I, didn't analyze it, but I would assume there's a lot of serial procedures if, if it's not totally strict serialism, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's very kind of reminds me a lot of Messian and the sounds. It totally reminded yeah. me of Messian. I
1: heard like WC Messian was, yep. uh, all over this, of uh, this piece. In fact, um, he said, Mel Powell said, talking about this, um, work is that he was reminded of being in paris during world war ii and talking to an old musician who knew debussy <laughs> mm. this is, tells you how old Mel powell is <laughs> 1823 um knew debussy and he said he'd forgotten most of the stories but one thing that he told me this is Mel powell speaking has come back to me frequently over the years it was about a time he and debussy were having a glass of wine at the chat noir <laughs> and debussy said do you know what the perfect music would be a perpetual cadenza it would be like a chain of gold coins, each like the other, but different enough to claim independence. I've never forgotten that, and that became my goal for duplicates.
0: So that's where the title... That's where the title comes from. Comes from, yeah. Yeah, It's and it, it has a very percussive quality mm-hmm. to it, uh, and a, a timbrel. I think yeah. timbre is very important. And then I also, along the same lines, thought of Boulez, mm-hmm. or kind of the... like. Maybe not Le Marteau, but some of his big orchestral pieces have that tinkling yeah. sound, and the pitch is really not. The pitch is not important. Issue. It seems. No, <laughs> I mean, no. sure, it's being used to control the piece and and
1: organize it. I thought I'd play a little bit of some of that middle movement yeah. because a lot of that this kind of coloristic stuff that you're talking about that's very Messian and and Boulez kind of comes through. So there at the end is very kind of Boulez serial mm-hmm. but right in the middle there's this clanging from the piano that is echoed in the chimes and the percussion and it just sounds just like Messiaen to me. Yeah,
0: oh, it really does. And again in the in the score when you it's very hard to follow the score but there are moments too very uh, there's some aleatoric things which I know Boulez eventually kind of got interested in that mm-hmm. and I don't know about Messian, but uh, but moments it's just non-metrical and metrical. Mm-hmm. So there are parts where the performers get to play for a minute or five, 50 seconds or something and yeah. uh, have a little bit of improvisation along the lines of this cadenza idea mm-hmm. uh, where they're getting to, to play. But there is, like like the reviewer said, there's there's not a lot of steady pulse. I mean, it, it does seem very... The piece does seem very gestural and very mm-hmm. improvisational in some ways. I'm curious what you thought about the interplay of the two pianos. Because he went to the pro- problem of
1: writing two piano parts, Yeah, um, calling it duplicates, of course, which also plays in the two pianos. Um, what did you think about the way the two pianos interacted? Or did you think they really
0: interacted? I didn't. I think sometimes it was hard for me to tell that there were two yeah. pianos. There, there were like... moments when it could have been one pianist yeah. playing. Yeah with all the big flourishes Mm -hmm. and things like that, which were probably broken up. But yeah, it was hard to distinguish. They didn't have a personality. Like some two piano pieces you can really tell, like Poulenc or different, you can hear what's going on. But no, it seemed to me to be more just part of the texture and part of the overall sound, the thickness, having two pianos. Yeah, and I felt the same way, and that really
1: seemed to me to be what he was after, is he's not after themes. Um, From audibly what you can tell, there's not a lot of development. I'm sure there's plenty of things going on that we could dig into in the way that he's constructed the piece. But audibly, you couldn't hear that kind of development. And so instead, what you're left with is timbre. Right. And the piano just becomes part of that timbre. To me, except for that little bit I played you at the beginning, it doesn't
0: seem like they're even leading the timbre. That it's just part of the overall wash right and so thinking about it in context is that are these techniques kind of similar to some of the pieces we've looked at recently or seem like an old-fashioned it seems old-fashioned it does it does yeah it does not
1: seem like it's written in the late 1980s no it very much feels like a kind of
0: 60s early 70s piece of music right right well shall we uh, see what everyone else thought about it Hit or miss.
1: All right, so we have some wonderful quotes from whenever Mel Powell discovered oh. that he had won the Pulitzer. Um, he was reached by phone, and so everyone was able to kind of print this up in the newspaper when he won in 19, for the 1990 award. Um, and evidently, he showed up for a graduate student's <laughs> lesson, and the graduate student was literally on the phone at his desk and said, oh, it's someone from East, back East, they'll call you back. <laughs> And so he started having this lesson, and then the phone rang again, and it was Feder,
0: who was the uh, VP at
1: uh, G. Shermer at the time, who and was And a his member publisher. of the
0: uh, Ives Society board as
1: well. That's right. All these connections to, to Pulitzer winners. I know. Congratulations, she said, and Mel Powell said, I thought, uh-oh, this is going to be one of those typical financial dealings that go on between <laughs> composers and publishers, that she's finally found a, a hundred bucks belonging <laughs> to me. Okay, what is it? I said, and it turns out she had heard the Pulitzer announcement on the radio in New York and never suspected the news hadn't reached me yet. The student knew and didn't say a word to him, but he said, it's true. The music I traffic in along with Milton Babbitt, Elliot Carter and others has never gained a great popularity. And so he thought that being out there on the coast, far away from the whole Eastern establishment with the Pulitzers connected, that he would never win. Yeah. Because as we've seen, it's a New York award and composers who are connected to New York win the award. Mel Powell is out at CalArts. So it is kind of shocking that he would have won.
0: Yeah, especially for this type of piece too, that, you know, what was, well, Roger Reynolds was a recent winner. So I guess that. And where was Roger w- Reynolds? was also West Right. So we're seeing yeah. this kind of
1: West Coast trend, I guess, in the late 80s and early 90s. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing that kind of might have made Mel Powell think, well, (laughs) someone on the West Coast just won, maybe I could win, too.
0: Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Well, this piece was, as we said, premiered by the Los Angeles Philharmonic. It was on uh, so Friday, Saturday, Sunday in January of 1990. And the concert featured, it was a pretty long concert, actually. Uh, So first, Our Town, Music from the Film by Copeland. Mm -hmm. Then we had this piece, so then the the duplicates. So that was a 32-minute piece then the intermission, the Nielsen Concerto for Flute and Orchestra, and then Sibelius' Seventh Symphony. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) That's a heavy program. Heavy program, definitely. Conducted by David Allen Miller was the conductor then. So now I have some interesting news here in our jury report. It it will touch on something you and I have mentioned in previous episodes. but, But first, what did the jury say? Well, the jury unanimously recommends duplicates. Uh, The work was first performed, blah, blah, blah. A major addition to the literature for piano and orchestra. Duplicates is vividly imagined in every music dimension, continually arresting to the ear and mind through its lavish and sustained invention, lucid even in its often intricate textures. Uh, And then the jury's second choice is Ralph Shapey's Concerto for Cello, Piano, and String Orchestra. We'll come back, we'll to, come Ralph back to Ralph Shapey. He's he's going to figure prominently in just a couple of episodes. Yes, and I remember uh, you and I read a quote about what the uh, this was not listed in the jury report, but I think it was also mentioned that the the jury was so enamored by this piece that it only took them three minutes. This yeah. was in the the liner notes to the recording
1: when it was uh, released um alan rich who was writing it said uh that always not only is known for favoring innovative musical styles he said they voted it its agreement unanimously after only three minutes of listening according to an insider report wow now i mean we know who's inside the room so if you want an insider (laughs) report it's going to be one of those if it's even true and this is the question we had getting into this is was it true
0: so did you discover unfortunately no but i found something else very interesting That didn't happen. And you and I wish that it would have, probably. The jury recommends that a special citation be given this year to John Cage. Wow. Though an uncommon... Oh, uh, through an uncommonly inquiring, productive, and influential career, Cage has never ceased to evolve. His uh, considered espousal of chance and disavowal of personal expression has not ultimately kept his works from attaining both strong... And affecting profiles as an artist who whose entirely individual path has had much international significance he has earned special recognition with a large and still growing body of work musical graphic and written can you imagine <laughs> if john cage had gotten a special pulitzer and even more so who was on the committee who was the chair well was it Roger Reynolds? He was on the committee. He was on the yes. committee because the past winner always is yes. is there somewhere. So he was there, but the chair make w- for that would make a lot more sense for Powell. It was Donald Martino. Ah, so that's an obvious choice. Mm-hmm. And then David Hamilton, who was a critic and uh, wrote a lot for the Metropolitan Opera and okay. taught a little bit at Juilliard and was a, a critic. So fascinating! It's fascinating. Yeah. I can't Nin- believe they wanted,
1: to, And that's at the end of his life. Yeah. So it's totally appropriate. It's like when they tried to honor Duke Ellington, it's the same kind of thing. Someone who had a huge impact on musical production in the United States and changing uh,
0: the way music is produced, totally overlooked by the Pulitzer. Totally overlooked. And so it makes you wonder. Uh, obviously, it didn't get up to the, high, the higher-ups, mm-hmm. didn't agree with that recommendation. So... What could have been. Yeah, that would have been amazing. Because then we could have talked about John Cage getting his special citation. I know. In 1990.
1: Well, the critical establishment was very in favor of this work. So it doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Um, And it also kind of strikes me as a, uh, it's not that it's it's Mel's turn, the way we've talked about, uh, especially in the 1940s and 50s, that they passed it around. but. Let's honor someone who's now done this significant work, who has done so much over the course of his lifetime. In some ways I see this as a lifetime achievement award. Like a Roger Sessions winner. Like a Roger Sessions winner. Yeah, that's true. I think that makes makes sense. And this is was his most substantial composition to date. So it makes sense to pick this one to kind of honor Mel Powell
0: for what he was do- doing. So, it's our moment of truth here uh, is duplicates a hit or miss? You. Well, if you take hit or miss to mean am I ever going to listen
1: to this again, then this is a huge <laughs> miss, unfortunately. I really could not get into it. Um I appreciated the colors. um, But, I mean, just us talking about Messian, it made me want to go listen to Messian. It yeah. made me want to go listen to other composers as opposed
0: to really appreciating what Mel Powell was doing here. What about you? Uh, uh Yeah, this is a big miss. I, uh, <laughs> I, I want to go listen to some jazz. I was enjoying the jazz piano a lot more than than this piece. It just first of all, thirty two minutes for a a piece is already stretching it for your when it doesn't have anything for you really to, hook into. yeah, exactly. when you don't have anything to grab onto, mm-hmm. and all the movements kind of sounded the same. And, I, mean, I, I kind of liked some of the textures and some of the oh, cool yeah. effects with the percussion and. Uh, I think you know there's some interesting timbres and sounds, but but as a piece for that length, it's really hard to hold on to. So, no, I, uh, maybe I'll go back and look at my homework here and go uh, look at the etude by Mel Powell, which is only one page. So, I mean, it was okay, Dave. So. It, I, only, <laughs> I got an okay, so uh, <laughs> there's that. But uh, but will I listen to duplicates ever again? No, I don't think so. Well, that's it for this episode of Hearing the Pulitzers. As always, you can find more about this project at our website, hearingthepulitzers.com, where you'll also find links in a short bibliography where you can read more about Mel Powell. And we'll put some uh, links to maybe a couple of his uh, uh, YouTube performances. You can hear some of his jazz piano, too. Also, follow us on Facebook and Twitter at HPulitzers for links between episodes. And be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to help people find the show. And uh, speaking of hearing from people, we're happy to hear from listener Norman, who says the podcast is, quote, absolutely fascinating and addictive. So if you want to join Norman, you can write us or you can uh, leave us a nice review on uh, your favorite podcast platform. Finally, join us next episode when we discuss the evocatively titled Symphony by Shulamit Ran. Until then, keep listening.